Chris and Chris Talk Movies. Hello, I hit the mic. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chris Ferry, and of course, this is my co-host. My name is Chris Huddleston. And today we are both very excited to be talking to you about uh, Guillermo del Toro's Oscar-winning film, The Shape of Water. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? Clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. looks at me, he does not know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. The natives in the Amazon worshipped him like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Eliza. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. Do you have a synopsis for us, Mr. Adels? I do. So The Shape of Water was a 2017 film directed by Guillermo del Toro. And the synopsis is such. Elisa is a mute isolated woman who works as a cleaning lady in a hidden high security government laboratory in 1962 Baltimore. I don't know if I realized it was Baltimore or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her life changes forever when she discovers the lab's classified secret of mysterious scaled creature from South America that lives in a water tank. As Elisa develops a unique bond with her new friend, she soon learns that its fate and very survival lies in the hands of a hostile government agent and a marine biologist. And it stars Sally Hawkins, Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Octavia Spencer, Doug Jones, and some other people. All right. So you, I had seen this before you, this was a first time watch for you. That's correct. Yes. So what did you think? Um, I loved it. I loved it. And it's interesting because I've had conversations with other people 
since who just couldn't get into the concept of it like the the very <laughs> one of them was like oh is that that one about the woman who has an affair with the fish and i was like that'll be it <laughs> i've heard other people say the same yeah <laughs> that'll be I the one get past that and they're like eh, is this but from the minute it started um it had its hook in me so mm-hmm. to speak see what i did there yeah uh it's just you know i think it's it's beautifully shot and it's lush and uh, it feels in, it's very poetic and human um you know, Del Toro is, I mean, it won the best picture for that year, right? So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, however you feel about the Academy and how they pick best picture, it's not usually given to just stinkers, you know? I mean, whether or not you think that was the one that should have won, it, it resonates in, in many ways with people on that. Um, I, I think a running theme of, of Del Toro's movies have to do with the monster and who or what is the monster. And sometimes there are literal monsters uh, in the movies. And frequently there's a, a character, a human character that is really the scariest monster of the film. And uh, Michael Shannon in this stole this movie. And it's great performances all across the board. Um, but he really ran away with it, in my opinion, because he is absolutely terrifying in this. Mm-hmm. He's a favorite of mine. I love Michael yeah. Shannon and almost everything I see him in. But um, this is just um, a spectacular performance. Uh, yeah, I love that it's a period piece. You know, I love that it's set when it's set 50s, right? Early 50s. 62, I think is what it's 62, 60s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Um the the actor who is the fish man yeah that's uh, doug jones doug jones does a lot of that stuff um and does it very well like wears a lot of prosthetics <laughs> in his career del toro comes back to him often because i don't know i don't know if you know what doug jones looks like outside of the makeup but he's he, oh, was, he was the he was wearing makeup <laughs> He, he, you know, he's a really thin guy and he was, uh, and you had brought this up before we watched the movie. I think that you wondered if it was the same character from Hellboy. Cause there's a, there's a fish guy in that too. And Doug Jones plays him. He's also, um, have you seen Pan's Labyrinth? Yes. He's the, you know, the creature uh, with that's Doug Jones yeah. as well. So, yeah, he works with him. Is he the actor in have you seen Star Trek uh, Discovery at all? Mm-mm. No, I bet that's also Doug Jones. There's a prominent character who is also he's tall and thin and is also covered with prosthetic stuff. Um, OK, I bet that's also Doug Jones. Um, I didn't become aware of that guy as an actor until Discovery. Okay. And then I see him everywhere. And now, now that I've watched like a series of episodes with this guy in it and I see something like this, or I see Hellboy and I'm like, I bet that's the same guy. I don't know for sure that it is, but I'd be surprised if it isn't. He's great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our ingenue, our female star is uh, mute. So she has a silent performance um no easy lift and really carries it off i mean everybody fantastic performances gorgeous cinematography 
I think that the shame in my mind of like my other friend who couldn't get past that kind of conceit, isn't that a woman who has a love affair with a fish, is that, and I think this is a central point of the movie, is that you, of course, you look at him and you see a fish, he's a monster, but what their, their feelings for each other are the most intensely human things in the film. And that's precisely the point. So mm -hmm. to let it stop you there is in some ways to hit the wall the movie attempts and I think succeeds in breaking down. Of course, it doesn't succeed if you don't watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, uh, just... Yeah, just just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. So, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on it? So uh, I saw this in the theater when it was originally released and loved it. And I had not been back to it since, you know, it was just a movie that I had fond memories of it. But watching it again um, and I started watching it when it, and it was like, you know, I was thinking, oh, I remember all this stuff. This is what happens. And I, I almost had the temptation to kind of fast forward since I've seen it before. And then, as you said, it gets its hooks in you. And it's just a beautiful movie. I mean, and, and like you were saying, you take this what, you know, it's in real life, it would be preposterous to think this, that, okay, this woman falls in love with this creature who bites the head off of a cat at one point, you know, because it doesn't know any better. But I think that is the, the skill of someone like Del Toro. Like I was thinking there's a scene very late in the film where she is in love with the creature, but it's, it's very difficult for, and she can't really express to him because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't speak English. He doesn't. And she she signs to him as she signs to, to everyone. Um, but she can't really express to him that at, at this point in the film, she can't express her feelings for him exactly. And there's a part where they're sitting at like there's one part where she buys him a card like a greeting card that says, you know, I appreciate you as a friend or whatever. And, you know, the thing is looking at it and it's like, he points at it, you know, and it's like, does he understand? He can't read, you know, so does he understand this? Um, but so they're sitting at her uh, table in her apartment that she lives in and it's eating eggs and she's signing and she's trying to tell him how much she loves him. And he's just eating his eggs. And she it turns into uh, a dance number where, you know, it goes to black and white and she's dancing with the creature, you know, and they do this dance routine. And I was just thinking on the page with a less skilled director, director, this could just be laughable. You right. could just be like, this is ridiculous. Right. But it's beautiful in the film. And so <clears throat> And as we always do with these movies, um, everything on the podcast, we are going to spoil this because I think we have to talk about the ending. So if you have not seen this, just watch it. It's 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 just a beautiful film. Everything Agreed. about it. Agreed. Um, but at the so ultimately they wind up together at the end and it's just 
you know, the, that last, I mean, just the whole movie is great, but that last 15 or 20 minutes where they're going to be united essentially is just, is just beautiful, you yeah. know? And, and at that point, you know, they're able to, they're able to communicate. Um, I don't really know where I'm, I'm going with all this, but it's, it's just, um, you know, it's a, it's a fantasy movie. Mm. And that's one thing that I. Fairy tale uh, was a the, fairy tale. Yeah. Was exactly. the word that the term that leapt to my mind. I, oh, this is a fairy tale. And you have Richard Jenkins as the narrator and Del Toro has come back to him. I don't know how many movies of Del Toro, uh, he, of Del Toro's that he's been in, but he was in Nightmare Alley too. And man, how great that guy is. You know, he has a pretty small part in it, but he narrates it you know, as this fairy tale, he just has such a great voice, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I just love that guy. I mean, everybody, yeah. everybody in this is fantastic, but I remember at the year that this was released to me, this was definitely a, an Academy award, best picture worthy film, but it's interesting in terms of the Academy because there aren't a lot of you know, fantasy, sci-fi, horror-ish films that, you know what I mean? That, I uh, that win best picture. So I thought as great as this film is, it was a really interesting, it was a little outside of the box for what the, the, the Academy would typically go after, I, I think, you know? I agree. And I sort of wish that I had taken the opportunity to read criticism and articles of this film because there's a lot going on in it. You know, I think there's a lot of typical fairy tale material going on and because we're coming in age and discovering of love and an exploration of self and identity. And, but there's, so Richard Jenkins is her roommate. I suppose they live above a movie theater. One of the big old grand single screen movie theaters. Well, they live across, yeah, they live across the across, hall from each other. Yeah. Yeah, across the hall from each other. But they both live above the theater. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there, it sort of weaves into their collective fantasies of the kind of golden they watch on television. They watch these sort of black and white Fred Astaire numbers. And, um, you know, there are big, I think there's a Ben-Hur-like epic playing down below at, at one point. And so the film kind of references this other media of the time, these other sort of depictions of fantasy life at the time. And, you know, Del Toro, and this is just kind of stream of consciousness, but he also was, at least you had told me that he was partially or, or working on a creature from the Black Lagoon mm -hmm. concept, you know, so he's got, which is of course a monster. I don't know precisely when that film was made but it's more of that era than ours the the right swamp monster um at the end there's a sort of a thing that the, like the aztecs or wherever they found this guy revered him as a god and he seems to sort of be able to heal himself so there's the that trope kind of runs through del toro movies too that some of these monsters are gods whether they're good gods or evil gods or just you know that humanity categorizes um, a, a literal monster in a variety of ways right mm -hmm. and doesn't 
<laughs> you've got a character like I can't remember the guy's name. Do you remember the character's name? Michael Shannon plays the agent. I'll, I'll look it up here real quick. Well, it, uh, anyway, but you've got a character like that walking around who is Richard Strickland. Strickland is uh, absolutely monstrous um, and very, very of his time. Like, that's the other thing I love about this being a period piece is he goes and he buys, everything's a symbol. He goes and he buys a fancy Cadillac and the salesman gives him this perfect period pitch, mm -hmm. you know, and he ends up driving out of there in that car, this aqua or teal. Cadillac. What was the color, though? There, there was uh, teal, I think it was, because he says green. green. He's like, no, he's no, like, it's, no teal. it's teal. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, the car gets smashed up in the escape. And it, so everything is um, a metaphor for something else. But um Sexuality is another thing in this movie that I think is dealt with in very frank and human ways. Um, uh, the uh, Richard Jenkins character has sort of a crush on a guy that works at a pie shop and misinterprets his friendliness and goes in and sort of puts his hand on the other guy's hand. And there's a really uncomfortable and I thought uh, frightening moment where we realize that the other guy isn't into it and is of is homophobic in a hostile way and it doesn't come to violence but i really thought it might have and in that moment and the, the whole thing the whole movie is set in this gorgeous glittering world that contains genuinely wonderful things but is also in many many places just skin deep mm -hmm. you know i mean the car yeah. i'm not nothing negative to cadillacs but the car is really comes to be about this sales pitch that the ad man the salesman paints for him and the the other side of the coin is also true because strickland who is a real uh nasty piece of work um, has, you know, two kids and a wife and a little 1962 house, right? And his teal Cadillac, and it all looks like it would on TV. All Everything looks like his wife has this kind of bell shit, Betty Draper, like bouffant haircut and the, mm -hmm. the, the poofed skirt. I forget what you call the stuff that makes the skirt poof out mm -hmm. from the 60s. But she gets the kids off to school and then she whispers in his ear one morning you know why don't you finish your breakfast and come upstairs because she's feeling randy you know and so he goes upstairs and there's a sex scene with him and his wife that it's just wonderful in so many ways it's absurd and it's funny and it's genuinely uh <laughs> she pulls her breast out of her shirt and puts his hand on it and with that bouffant hairdo i mean it was just like in 1962 i just i i have it in my mind that all the men were like ken dolls and all the women were little barbies and they were all repressed and you know sure some mm -hmm. of them drank themselves to sleep every night but this just feels you know she feels not like a barbie doll she's a woman with needs right mm -hmm. And he, uh, <laughs> so the thing bites two of his fingers off Yeah. at one point. And our ingenue finds the fingers and puts them, and they manage to reattach the fingers. And he says, it's not, you know, it's not clear if they're going to take or not. And so the rest of the movie, 
He's got these two fingers that turn they're turning black, darker yeah. and darker until they're just these dead fingers. And he, oh man, there's a scene in which he pulls them off to intimidate another character. There's race in it, of course, because her coworker is black. And, uh, you know, and it's Jenkins becomes the kind of, is that his name? Did I just misremember his name? Richard Drink Jenkins is the actor that that is no, no, no. his friend. Strickland, um, Strickland, 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 yeah. <laughs> sorry uh strickland um is the kind of mouthpiece for everything uh the underbelly of this world like toxic masculinity and um you know kind of i don't know i don't have a term for this like casual white supremacy like he's not a card carrying member of some KKK or, you know, but it's just baked into his worldview. They talking about God at one point It's like, you know, he looks like that's why God looks like me or you probably a little more like me, <laughs> you know, he's, he's not making a joke. It's yeah. just, it's just the way white America did and probably still views itself it's that we are really, it's, this is our country and everyone else is here. And we yeah. tolerate you to varying degrees, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It was just, it's just chock full of it. And none of that feels leaden or preachy or hit you over the no. head. It's just in there. No, no, it's not heavy handed, but yeah. I mean, the, um, you know, so this time period was a little over a decade before you and I were born, but we grew up with the, you know, all these old sitcoms were on TV and people have, especially people who, you know, maybe grew up, then there's a nostalgia for these eras where, like you said, everything, everything seemed perfect. And probably in a lot of ways, it was perfect if you were a straight white male, you know, and Del Toro is showing you have, uh, is it Octavia Spencer? Is that mm -hmm. her name? Yeah. Um, you know, it's also so great. Yeah. So, you know, she's black. Richard Jenkins is gay. Um, uh, Sally Hawkins, she can't speak, you know, so she's handicapped. So there are all these people that and the other and guys are fish. Yeah, the other guys are fish. Yeah. So he, you know, he has uh, no real power. And uh, although, you know, we find out that he's really powerful, but Richard Jenkins is or not Richard Jenkins. Uh, Strickland. Uh, Strickland. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it now. Um, you know, he's this person at the top of the food chain and you, there's a scene towards the end where, so they've taken, you know, the fish guy, they've gotten him out and Richard Jenkins is there's a, so it's a government facility where they have this, this fish man stored the asset, they call it. And there's a general that is above strickland and he comes in you know and he's on his ass and everything so you get even as bad as strickland is he you know he has somebody that he has to answer to and um so he goes you know he's trying to track down where the asset is and he goes to octavia spencer's house and um you know, just immediately comes in and is threatening her and her husband is sitting in a chair and he stands up and, 
Michael Shannon just says, you know, shut up and sit down. And he just sits down and you, it's not explicitly spelled out in this, but you've got to think, okay, this black man, if he would beat him up or kill him or whatever, I'm sure he, you know, is probably thinking, I can't do anything against this right. white guy. Because in my own home. In my own home, right. because yeah. I'll go to prison. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to, they're going to believe that this government, you know, this guy who works for the government in this important job, you know, they're going to believe uh, him over me. Um, I'm sure, you know, that's what, like I say, I'm reading into that, but I'm sure that's what the character probably was thinking. Like, what can I do? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Del Toro is, is, is saying a lot of really interesting things here without being preachy about it and, you know, beating you over the head, the head with it. But, you know, this is probably, um, again, somebody like Michael Shannon's character could have gotten away with a lot at this time you know right and he his character is sort of surprisingly attracted to the lead mm-hmm. not least of which because she can't speak right and so he comes on to her more and more overtly throughout the film and there's that love scene with his wife he covers her mouth with his rotting hand and his mm-hmm. he's bleeding through the bandages which is right over her mouth that she's like, honey, he's like, Shh, don't talk. I don't want to be silent, silent. And that's how he achieves climaxes by fantasizing his wife can't speak, maybe fantasizing that's the other woman. It's just yeah. messed up. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> but, again, but very human, you know, but it, yeah. but it feels entirely like this movie doesn't there aren't private hidden places from uh from the eye of the camera in this you know we see people frankly who they are mm-hmm. um i don't know it's just it's just so well done and there's a there's a russian spy too so it's 1962 cold war there are russian spies and there's a scientist that works at the facility that's like bob or whatever but his real yeah. name is <laughs> you know dimitri. dimitri and uh he cares uh about this creature not in the way that she cares he has i don't think he's become personally attached but he realizes that it's intelligent he he's a scientist spies through a viewing camera that this creature is developing a relationship with this um you know janitor this woman who cleans the floor and that she's signing to him and giving him eggs and that the two are playing music i I think yeah i think it's intelligent and it, it can communicate and he's they want to dissect it for some, uh, but they're trying to win the space race and they're trying to learn something about existing in two different, because it can breathe above water for a while or below yeah. water and they're trying to learn something. I mean, they, they say some justification, but basically they want to cut it open and see what's inside. And Which is exactly what they would do. It's just like he's trying to stop. It. He's like, no, you can't. This is a, an intelligent. There's so much to learn from mm-hmm. this and killing it just, kills it you know yeah it's but just like dr manhattan spy. it's just like dr manhattan in watchmen naturally the government would make him into a weapon you know instead of using him for good somehow you know right right so, so all of that all of that's in the stew and it's a delicious fish stew at the end he 
you know michael shannon shows oh, yeah, i up. wanted to ask you about the ending so go ahead uh there, so she's gonna set him free she keeps him the fish guy they spirit him away from the facility and they she keeps him in her tub for a while he's not doing well his scales are coming off she has a plan to release him there's a harbor where there's a sort of a a lock that fills up with water and I never I never understood why you couldn't just dump them over the you got to wait till the lock fills up with water yeah, just set really them free yeah. days and weeks go by until this designated date when there's supposed to be rain and the lock fills up and she can set them free in the lock rather than just backing the car up and and he can swim dump them in the water mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, so all this time, Michael Shannon is trying to figure out, get him back. And, and it comes to a head in the night. They, the, it's pouring rain and they take him out to free him. And Michael Shannon is there, shows up and shoots everybody, basically. Um, shoots her, shoots Jenkins too, I think, right? Does he shoot Jenkins? Yes. And plugs the fish guy twice in the chest. And it looks like, ah, oh, he killed everybody. But then the fish guy stands up and sort of heals himself, right? And it kills kills uh, Strickland by sort of swiping his, just rips his throat out. He's got webs. He has like sharp kind of talent yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and Strickland has a line when he heals himself. He's like, "Oh, you are a god." Um, before he dies. Mm-hmm. And she's more or less dead. It appears, and fish guy and her get in the water and. All through the film, she has had these three scars on either side of her neck that we haven't delved into. You know, somebody notices them and she's sort of shy about them. And it's been mentioned that she's an orphan. I mean, remember, again, fairy tale here. Yeah. Um, So he kind of glows when he's healing or doing what is this beautiful bioluminescent stripes all over his body and they open the up on the design of him is just is, fantastic. It's gorgeous because it really could have been creature from the black black lagoon, yeah. but it's definitely evocative of that. It's definitely mm-hmm. homage to that. But uh in the eyes, too, he's got multiple lidded eyes in there. Mm-hmm. That actor, for somebody wearing a ton of prosthetics, he can be extremely uh emotive oh, with yeah. his body language and even his face. There's lots of stuff in his face where he's like gazing at her. And I'm like, this dude is a, is basically wearing a Halloween mask. Like, it's not even Batman where you get the lower hat or dread where you get from here down. It's just the whole thing is this like <laughs> prosthetic shield between him and the camera. And it's he, he, he projects it's great mask work. Anyway, so she, she turns out that she can breathe underwater. Whether he does that to her, I guess I interpret it like part of so their, that she has gills the yeah the, the, and can breathe the underwater open up and or, so did you see that coming at all like did you when we when we saw when, the scars did when you think i noticed like, oh, they're gonna be yeah gills? when i noticed them on both sides of her neck i thought okay. i wonder if that's where it's going you know i wonder if this is a water world type thing but i and it never really answers that question except that she was an orphan blah 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 and you always you always think well maybe you know, if she's a mermaid, maybe the fairy tale part of this is they were made for each other in some way or not so opposite as, 
it it hints you know in a fairy tale disney fairy tale there's a curse that turns the guy into a wolf or what you know a beast mm-hmm. and it it, it, <laughs> it kind of it kind of chimes with all of that like oh she really is they can be together and mm-hmm. they're not as different as it first seemed etc uh, but it didn't seem like this it seemed like the fulfillment of prophecy more than and now by the magic of fish i make you a fish right yeah. um but there was no no indication in dialogue or anything else that she was anything other than human who just couldn't speak right yeah i i didn't and i i, I will admit i'm I'm never great at predicting endings of films or any, or like solving the mystery or anything. Cause I can't, I think I just get kind of wrapped up in the visuals and everything, but I didn't see it coming at all. And it was just like, Oh, that's, and I could see maybe people thinking it's a silly, uh, you know, maybe you wouldn't buy into it. I don't it's, know, but it's, but I, it's, it's, it's a great. happy ending, mm-hmm. you know, it's a happy ending. And I think that, you, you think know, in the, in the, in the final minutes, you think, Oh, they're going, you know, because the it it, it it was never going to work. It could have never worked. Right. So and she, this is and how it always had to end, right? She signs to him at one point, you know, you, me, together. And at the end, he does the sign, you, me, together. And she says, no, you have to go. We can't be together. And he is very sad. Right. You think, oh, he's going to jump in the water and then that's the end. They right. won't be together. But yeah, it's a it's a beautiful, happy ending. If this potential has always been a part of her, she is unaware of it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we don't get the sense that she's like, no, I can't because I left that part of me behind. There's none of that. Um, and her legs don't turn into a tail. I said the term mermaid. If that's my term, that never really comes up anywhere in the in the film. And none of that is the point, right. you know, none of that is the point. The point is that you get this kind of fairy tale happy ending, despite all expectation and prediction of everybody, including our ingenue, you know, she just, she's Cinderella, you know, I'm never, I'm not, that I dream of being a queen, but I don't think it's possible that it will happen, you know, and then yeah. she dreams of, of being able to be with this being that she has fallen in love with and feels so whatever and then Jan at the end they do get to be together so i think a, a, a happy ending like that a fairy tale happy ending is kind of hard to pull off in a movie that takes itself seriously because it's such an it's such a pure fantasy in, in most movies we you get the happy ending and that's just where we stop telling the story you know <laughs> because that's how life is, is there's these ups and downs. So you stop on a high point. You're like, oh, see, it all worked out. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a fairy tale, you can just leave it. Like there's not going to be a chapter two of this. There's no, this is just the story of the Richard Jenkins voiceover. Is even like the, the princess, he calls it, right? The, yes. The princess without voice. Yeah. So, I mean, right from the beginning, it's setting this up as like, this is a fairy tale, but nobody uses that term. Right. Everything is shown and meaning is suggested. And then you're left to draw from it what you will. But I wasn't one of those movies that I left scratching my head. There were questions that I had that weren't answered, but not like logical things that I got hung up on. Like if they could do that, then why didn't they just do the uh, except Mm -hmm. for the water? Right. So I'm like, 
Yeah. I mean, you, there's no, there was no other way that you could have gotten this thing into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Well, she also wanted to keep it around. You know, she didn't want to, she didn't want to send him away. Yeah. I'm sure, she, you know, I, she was, uh, I'm sure regretful, not regretful isn't the right word, but she wasn't looking forward to that, you know, cause they're leading up to that date that it's going to rain and it's going to lift, you know, raise the water up and, you know, I'm sure she didn't want that time to come. Um, but, you know, then it all works out. Yeah, I also don't see a lot of magical realism like this literal uh, a, example of magical realism in film where it's more, more or less telling you a quote-unquote real story in a quote-unquote real setting. Mm -hmm. But... truly magical and fantastical things happen at one point she uh, stops up she turns on the water in his in his, in the bathroom and she shuts the door and she stuffs towels under the bottom of the door and what happens in the film is the the room fills up with water so that she and he can be together completely submerged in water because he's just been in this tub the whole time right you know, and it is leaking and there's the theater sort of raining in the theater downstairs. And it's just all these kind of, well, of course, that wouldn't be possible. That's not how a room would behave if you yeah. tried to do it with water. But, uh, but it seems totally plausible in the movie. And that, I guess that's what I mean by magical realism is you just so beautiful that literalism kind of becomes poetry. And uh, and then it, it just steps across, so dances sort of across that line and back so much throughout. I mean, the very idea of a fish man is everybody just yeah. sort of accepts. I'm like, well, how would they process this? Oh, we call it the asset and we take it to a secret facility. Right. Right. So like, this is a creature. This is you can't kill this. Like you have to study what this is. This is huge. The scientist plays that to the T he's like what's the matter with you people mm -hmm. <laughs> don't you see what we have here this is insane and it was it's like the oh, only oh, one we're gonna cut it open see what makes it tick <laughs> and it's the only one that they know of you know yeah. there doesn't seem to be another one of these creatures but yeah that magical realism is and it's great that other than the scene that we we talked about briefly where there's the little dance number um you know, that's the only part of the movie that is kind of in her imagination, but everything else, you know, as it's presented to us actually happens. There's none of it that's, and I love that, that you have that mixture of, you know, what could actually happen. And then this fish guy that, that couldn't actually happen. So we, in a pretty short time frame, we watched three del Toro movies, um, we watched uh, Crimson Peak and the Nightmare Alley and this one. Could you say that there's one that was your favorite? Or, I mean, they're all very different, but, you know, and this one has a happy ending, whereas Del Toro doesn't necessarily, you know, Nightmare Alley is a very not happy ending. Right. And Crimson Peak is not a happy ending either. You know, both pretty dark, pretty dark endings. I think Crimson Peak would take third place for me of those. Three I think movies. so too, even though I love Crimson Peak. But yeah, I would say it's not quite as good as this or Nightmare Alley. 
And Nightmare Alley and this are just such different films. I feel like, and Nightmare Alley's a remake. Mm-hmm. Not that that's disparaging or should be disparaging in any way. I think that this one as a fairy tale probably edges it out for me just because it's such a perfect kind of a bonbon. It's like a Christmas present of a movie. It's yeah. so self-contained and, you know, it brings sort of, I mean, it doesn't bring itself full circle, but it just sort of completes it itself. It's this little snow globe of this gorgeous thing. I loved Nightmare Alley. I did too. And the thought occurred to me as I was watching that movie, the, the term masterpiece occurred to me. I'm like, this is, this is a masterpiece. This is so masterfully done. And that didn't occur to me in The Shape of Water, perhaps because I had just seen the other one. But mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, Tom Stoppard is a playwright that I like a lot and has written many plays and I've been in a few of them. And he wrote a play called Arcadia Mm -hmm. that is not, I don't think he himself would consider his greatest work, but it is this sort of perfect thing. It's this kind of snow globe. It it's gorgeous and rich and multi-layered and, but it all kind of comes around full circle. And he said, that is the one that came out of him the most easily. Like when writing it, that one just sort of fell out of his pen into this perfect creation. And that's how I feel about the shape of water. It just feels like he had this in his mind and he just put it on film. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things, one of those things that come to you almost fully formed and you're like, I wouldn't, I'm not going to change a thing. That's exactly how it should be. So. Yeah. There's no fat in this film. Like what would you cut out of this film? No, no, there's not. I mean, it's, it trips right along and it's not hours. It's yeah. Yeah. It's not an hour, 20 minutes. It's a two hour film, but again, you're hooked. Like once it gets you, you are just on for the ride. Um, So, I mean, I don't know. I I suppose if I had to watch one of them again tonight, I'd probably watch The Shape of Water. I would too. That's what I was going to say. But it was close because Nightmare Alley was so great. I loved Nightmare Alley, but The Shape of Water is definitely a film that I think I would revisit more often than Nightmare Alley. I think, I I mean, I'd see things I missed in both. Right. But I think I'd see more that I missed in The Shape of Water because, like you say, there's no fat. Nothing's arbitrary in those Mm -hmm. big elaborate sets he creates. It's not accidental. Del Toro is just, and I mean, I've said this on the show, you know, several times, but he's just a master filmmaker. Um, And I, I don't know if I said this before, but he was attached to a uh, Justice League dark film that was in development for a while. Um, And he's a bit like uh, Quentin Tarantino where he talks a lot about projects that he's working on or did work on or wants to do. And it's all, you know, there are all these things that, you know, he's probably never going to get to do all the things that he wants to do, but he, He's tried several times to do a uh, In the Mountains of Madness, H.P. Mm. Lovecraft movie, which is never um, 
that's tough you know, material and, <laughs> yeah oh, yeah yeah but uh the justice league dark movie was going to have uh it wouldn't be superman and batman and wonder woman it's going to be constantine and swamp thing and i just think if i were a movie you know, if i were executives at disney or marvel or dc or whatever i would just back a truck up to his house and just be like okay what character do you want what's the budget do whatever you want you know because he could on the other hand i'm perfectly happy with him just continuing to do his own thing these movies that he writes and directs you know that are well nightmare on alley uh, nightmare alley was a was a remake but you know you you get what i'm saying but yeah so i mean he the guy's just he's definitely one of the best filmmakers working right now and i'm interested in anything he's gonna do he and denny villeneuve that's right our two our two favorites so two current favorites let's do our ratings real quick and then i had a listener question about nightmare alley that i wanted to to ask Great. you about real quick so would you recommend it i would recommend it wholeheartedly I me mean, too this is, this i mean is, this was you- have you been listening to the yeah. podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this was definitely, I felt that year deserving of best picture. I was really, I mean, I felt like that was the best movie that I saw in, in 2017. So yeah, if you haven't seen The Shape of Water, just watch it. It's a, it's just a beautiful, Yeah, this is for people who love movies. This is just, I mean, he, you know, it's, it's uh again not hitting you over the head with it but she lives above a movie theater and there's a scene where the fish man gets out and is watching what is he watching cleopatra or something like that in the movie theater yeah yeah so you know he's obviously he's a guy who loves movies and i I just think this is just for people who love movies this is it's a love letter it's a love letter to cinema um i i agree with you 100 i i I think if you have kids that are mature enough to handle, um, I, there isn't a ton of overt violence in it, but the but it, when it's violent, it's pretty graphic. Yeah, and the psychological violence is upsetting. Mm-hmm. Like Michael Shannon is genuinely scary, and the sexuality, like I say, is frank. You know, there's some nudity that is not in and of itself a big deal to me. No. But the nudity in this feel in this film feels so sexually charged in a true way. Like it's not um, it doesn't feel gratuitous or salacious. It just feels like she gets up in the morning and she has this little routine involves taking a bath and she masturbates in the bath. And we mm-hmm. see that this is her routine. She puts one foot clunk up on the side of the thing and throws her head back. And uh, I, I just remember being like, not clutching my pearls, but being like, oh, my, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and, and, yeah. and there's it's just, yeah, I guess, it, for lack of a better way of saying it, it's very European in that way. It doesn't seem to have American, the, the American hangups with sex are part of the world in which the film is set. It's mm-hmm. not part of the filmmaker's sensibility of displaying this world and that there's kind of that contrast there there's kind of that this is the sort of american repression and the ways in which that lives in the bedroom and then this is the sort of like well when you when nobody's looking here's how we are with our own bodies or when we're with somebody that we love even if that person is a fish here's how we are with our own bodies and i it was enormously refreshing but i wouldn't watch that i wouldn't watch this movie with my kids who are 13 and and 11 um 
and maybe maybe I'm just a prude, but I, I would wait until they're a little bit. I'd say 13 and 11 would be a little young, you know. I'd wait until they were a little. I don't. I don't think they get it. I don't think they'd appreciate. Yeah, that's part of it. I don't think they'd be scarred or they. They would. You know what I mean? Like I don't. So I say fairy tale and I say it's beautiful and I. Some people are like my kids can take it. That's fine. My mine probably aren't quite there. Maybe I'm just got. Maybe I'm the one with hangups. But uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, this is a movie, and I was thinking this as I was watching it that I think my parents maybe would like. They, they would either think it was really good or they would just be like, that was weird. But they would be bothered by the sexuality and the some of the violence would be a little too brutal for them yeah. as well. Yeah, my mom um, wouldn't um, like the violence. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great film. That's part of Del Toro's universe, too. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's very much part of He's the showing world. A lot of aspects of, of, you know, what life is like. So... The Nightmare Alley question that I had. So a friend of mine, um, Eugene, who's a li who listens to the show, um, and he's not American, um, and he had watched the the new Nightmare Alley and loved it, and then he also watched the original, which I have not seen before. And I said, you know, what did you think? And he said, well, I liked it, but I didn't like it as well as the new one. And he was saying. And I, I agreed with him. He said, I have some trouble with watching because I think it's 1947 when it came out. And he said, I those movies seem weird to me. He said, I have a little bit of trouble connecting with them. And I said, well, I do, too. And I said, he said, you know, it's the strange way of speaking. And I told him that. Um, and since you studied acting, I wanted to ask you about this. So I said, well, there's something called the the transatlantic accent or the uh, there's another term that they use for it that I'm, I'm drawing a blank on. But I said, you know, so when you watch those 30s and 40s movies, everybody sounds kind of vague. They're American, but they're vaguely British. And I said that was a manufactured accent for acting and also. Um, it was kind of like posh schools and, you know, in the, in the yeah. Northeast. You can and do I a said, finishing school to learn to talk yeah. that way, to use, lose your regional accent and talk like a refined person. Right. And I said, eventually, some, somewhere around the 60s, I said, that kind of fell out of fashion. And I said, for me, the, the kind of the 60s is the beginning of modern filmmaking i think and he said yeah he said when did planet of the apes come out and i said 1968 and he said well charlton heston just he sounds like a person today and i said yeah and i said i think again i'm not a film scholar or anything but i said for whatever reason that transatlantic accent kind of went away um and then the 60s you got into this kind of more naturalistic acting and we've been there ever since nobody uses the transatlantic accent but was that something when uh is that even like in theater is that is that still taught today or anything or is it just completely dead do you know that's a good question that i don't know that i can answer it's a thing um mm -hmm. when i was in uh acting school we studied a thing called the ipa which is the international phonetic alphabet and so okay. if you had to play a character who was irish you could look up what particular region or area of Ireland, like if it's Northern Ireland, Belfast, you know, you, you, mm -hmm. this is documented where the, there's sort of 
it's an alphabet of sounds of phonetic sounds so if if the line is uh you're strange you said you'd be here at eight but you're always late you would and you were trying to sound like me you would write that out in your script using ipa above the above the lines so mm -hmm. that you know your would be like yeah and then er you're strange a and j right and then but for if you were doing belfast it would be something more closer to like you know you're strange you said you'd be here at eight but you're always late and so mm -hmm. you'd use different and that way it was a way of being consistent with in other words you'd learn your hand you'd learn to say it the way you'd written it in and that's mm -hmm. how you would sound convincing um and you could do that for the that i forget is it transatlantic or mid-atlantic or something Mid yeah mid-atlantic those are kind of used terms are kind of used interchangeably transatlantic and mid-atlantic and and i've seen productions of like earlier theater classics where they decided we want everybody to speak in this accent mm -hmm. right we want everybody to use this mid-atlantic standard um but it's not like you say it's not it's not from anywhere it's not like oh that's how people talk in washington dc you know it's just yeah. a it was a it was a movie construct to make everyone sound refined and slightly british and i don't know the origins of it but i, I don't think it was actually i watched a couple of youtube videos about it and i don't recall the but there was some uh theater director who created it hmm. um essentially that's interesting. so yeah it was just it was just like I say, it was just manufactured. It wasn't like other accents that just happen organically, you know, and it was around for however many decades and then it it went out of fashion. But, you know, you think of like uh, Catherine Hepburn or even, you know, there were even you watch like political figures from that time, because like you said, they would have gone to a finishing school or whatever, like FDR, you know, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't even do it right with the you know you drop the r no, but when you that, if you but... see those old black and white hollywood movies you're seeing it right i mean right. that's everybody is talking in some version of that and of course catherine hepburn did but catherine hepburn also had a really distinctive voice <laughs> yeah you know right. that became part of her thing but as so a like Cary grant exactly you know. my mm. darling i'm sure you it's sort yeah. of a claim that was kind of he did he was he was even more of a palette was sort of stiff but uh, uh, it's it is really interesting, um, and I think that in the sixties, yeah, it, naturalism became something that's like, you know, I think an Easy Rider, which is exactly a boring ass movie if you ask me now. But it was all about breaking the, the ending form. is great, but yeah, <laughs> it's all about breaking the forms of what you know. It's just like, no man, it's the sixties, and we're gonna be real. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's my. But that definitely for me, and I know for me, this is a, as somebody who really loves movies, I guess this is kind of a blind spot or whatever for me. There are certainly, you know, I love Alfred Hitchcock. So there, there are films, you know, black and white films and, you know, It's a Wonderful Life and things like that. But there are a lot of films from that era that I'm sure are great, but I just have a, you know, in kind of pre-60s, I have a really hard time connecting with with films. You know, um, there's a lot of stuff from the 60s and beyond that I love, but, you know. I hear you. 
I don't, I mean, I don't watch a bunch of the old movies, but I love like, you know, the Maltese Falcon. I mean, there's classics that are just great movies that uh, the style um, doesn't get in the way of me getting really into the movie. Um, Yeah. And I would love to watch the original Nightmare Alley, you know, and there are some, I like, I like noir. So there are definitely some of those noir films from, from the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s that I would, that I would like to watch sometime but there's just so much stuff to watch as well you know i love neo-noir yeah yeah film is great yep (laughs) so we already know what we're gonna watch yes next week time bandits time bandits so chris and chris talk movies at gmail.com if you are watching us on youtube you're seeing our face thank you for watching please like and subscribe uh, if you're listening to us on the podcast, thank you for listening. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, continuing to listen, perhaps. Um, we are available. We're on the socials. You can send us a suggestion or your questions. Um, we are going to be doing Time Bandits for next week, which is a film I remember from my youth. Haven't seen in a long, long time, but I'm excited. Uh, and we, I think we even have a ghost of an idea for what's after that, but we can talk about that when we get there. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So uh, thank you for joining us. Do you have anything else to add, Chris? Nope. I think we, we got it. I think we covered it all. <laughs> Excellent. Then we will talk to you next week. <laughs>